Hey everyone, it's me, James Stacy, and this week we have a sweet and cheerful candy-coated episode for the holiday that everybody loves, Valentine's Day. So grab your sweetie, open up a box of heart-shaped chocolates, and do your best to keep that giant foil balloon from mixing things up with your ceiling fan, because I'm asking you to be mine for the next hour or so. Speaking of sweeties, don't worry, I'm not alone. I'm joined by Nora, Jack, and Danny. Hey, Valentine's crew. How's it going? Hey. It's going great. Going really well. <laughs> All right. I think in the past, so Dinky's kind of, maybe we'd run a story about Valentine's. I actually don't know. It's not the story I would have attached my, tried to attach my name to typically, but I do believe it's a thing. And in, in kind of the current format for Hodinkee, we have these uh, big weekend presentations, theme weekends, which are going really well. People seem pretty engaged. And it's hard to kind of explain why somebody who's only ever come to the site Monday to Friday should definitely start coming on the weekends. But I think this is this is going to be a show that kind of highlights some of the value there. So this theme weekend, of course, this coming out on the 14th was all kind of Valentine's Day uh, themed. And Nora was the architect of, uh, of said project. Nora, when you're given kind of a nebulous non-watch topic, like I, I got value props for mine. So I just had to look into watches that I like, kind of inexpensive watches, not hard. <laughs> how do you even approach Valentine's Day and how it matters to watches? It was a mix of the very literal. We had one really good story, only one really good story um, <laughs> from last year about watches that partners of Hodinkee staff wanted. And I think it's really interesting to sort that of... That is a good story. Yeah, the like people who are one removed from it all, sort of what their dream watch would be, almost as payment for putting up with all of us, I imagine. <laughs> It's a fair price. Then I got a little a little creative with it. We had this really gorgeous wedding watch story that Daisy put together this summer of this couple sharing the watches they wore on their wedding, where they came from, sort of how the watches played into their relationship. A reminder that these can be celebratory pieces that a couple can do together rather than just like gifts between one another. And then I got a little weird with it. I think my favorite stories absolutely to work on was the Benefer watch. And what's more romantic than a watch that is gifted and then resurfaced years later when a couple returns to each other, the height of romance. And then, you know, kind of looking at the statistical end of romance, I did uh, Danny's Kramer versus Kramer watch spotting. Oh, Just, God. You know, to... <laughs> are, you, are you sure you've seen the movie? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that's the statistical part of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just to sort of throw in a little curveball in there for people who are maybe not feeling as joyous about uh, Valentine's Day as some other folks. So yeah, it was a fun weekend to have to sort of get a little fast and loose with it. And also look at the watches that other people consider parts of romance and love and partnership. Absolutely. And the we did a we did a story on on pink watches that we like, one of our editor roundups. Mm-hmm. And I think that might be kind of a fun place to start in more specificity. Outside of being asked to fill in a spreadsheet, do any of the three of you have any interest in a watch with a pink dial for your own risk? No, I I don't. When I wrote mine, which was on the OP 36, which this is my second editor's picks in a row, I think, where I'm using an OP 36. He's a one trick pony. We've got a lot of OP stuff on the on today's show. <laughs> I know people are going to be really, really mad at me. Uh, and I know that. And I address that in my my little write up. So I hope um, I'm still in everybody's good graces. But yeah, I I think my my point was if I was going to go with one, it would it would be that one, you know, the inability to get one at retail, quote unquote, notwithstanding. 
that'd be my choice. But yeah, no, in, like in, in my general everyday life, if I'm looking for a watch and I'm going to spend thousands of dollars on it, is my, my brain going to turn to a pink dial watch? In all honesty, a hundred percent. No, a hundred percent, hundred percent. I just, I, it wouldn't, I mean, if it, it becomes a, a, a moment where I'm parting with a lot of money and it just wouldn't, it wouldn't come down to that. Maybe in, you know, in some fantasy world of mine where I, my income is expendable enough to do that. But in my current station, I would say no. Danny and I are of, are, are of a similar age. And I think that we, we might carry a little bit of baggage over. There was a wave of time where men were wearing pink polos, pink button ups, like as like a move, salmon or bright pink or as it being like a, almost like a flash or a statement piece. Your camera on phase. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I might also be a little bit like, you know, my, my prom date in high school wore a, a salmon dress. And so I had to wear a salmon vest and a salmon bow tie. Yeah. That's hard to come back from though. So I think I'm just a little bit. Uh, Some scar tissue. I'm, still, I'm working that off. <laughs> Will we get that in the body of the text? Can we have that photo? I have the photo. Yes. Let the negotiations begin. <laughs> the hair's its own thing. Mm-hmm. We'll trade for three more OP stories. Fair. And <laughs> negative two Space Jam stories. That's fine. I'll take it. We'll take two Space Jam stories away. I don't hate the idea of a pink dial watch, although I think um, I, I've been like writing about watches and looking at them for so long that like, you know, when you do the, when you were exposed to something for long enough, you eventually start to develop really like kind of like weird eccentric taste. And the only thing that you find, things that you find attractive are things that are like really kind of on the periphery of what's actually popular. I think that's what's happened to me, but I would, I don't know. I mean, like a, a pink dial Cartier tank, I think would be fine. Yeah. I, I, in my mind, like, I, I think the closest I would end up would be something like a rose gold option or, or sort of salmon dial. And even then my interest like vacillates wildly between like, the tiny little points of data that I would decide would make something that I like or don't like. Nora, how about yourself? I, I mean, the, the trend in the industry, of course, is shrink it and pink it. So that, it, that that's how they have marketed uh, watches to women for a long time. Does that have an effect or does that make you hate pink watches at some level? I don't hate pink watches. I'm, I like, I actually really like that Oris cotton candy a lot. I think they're, it's a cool watch. It's like balanced with sort of being kind of big and chunky. I think it would be farther down my list as someone who is like building their collection. I would have to, I think, get to a certain point of like the basics and then get a little funky with it. But I think I would absolutely end up with a pink watch, probably that Oris one. Who remembers the uh, Richard Mille Bun Bun watches? Oh, of course. Yeah. Frank Ocean has Speaking one. Speaking of pink. And it's the only reason I would have written about such a watch. I'm a, a diehard Frank Ocean fan. It's good to see Frank out there mixing it up. I mean, here's, I mean, I don't have many opportunities to call back to the time I hung out with Brooke Shields. So I'll take this time to do that now. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> During my conversation with Brooke Shields, <laughs> uh, she did have uh, uh, a pink dial Air King. And it struck me it's cool for Brooke Shields, right? Right, but it's one of to me the pink dial watch is one of those like oh, that's really interesting. That's very cool in the moment, and it's not necessarily. I'm also somebody who's generally wearing steel watch black dial all the time, and I think that's because I have this fear that if I get something that's a little bit too colorful, that I'll love it for some time and then slowly tire of the color. But I have no way of knowing, so maybe I need to have. Maybe I need to test drive a pink dial watch for a year. Couldn't hurt. And then I'll really know. What? Hodinky, if you're listening. That's just ownership, I think, at that point. My year of pink dials. Nora, you mentioned the, the Cotton Candy, which is the watch that I picked. Probably my favorite pink watch. But I, even in the text, I said, like, as much as I'm acknowledging the existence of the pink watch, I would buy the blue one if it was my money. I really like a pastel blue dial. 
Um, I've owned a couple watches with that. We, we, and we've covered them before. Obviously, there's some popularity to that given uh, color range these days. And uh, while I may not prefer a pink dial, I do like that it's kind of subversive to put one on a, a dive watch that has 100 meters water resistance and is fully bronze. Like it's, it's, it's a dive watch in form, but it's something else in end effect. That'd be the other thing is I guess I wear a lot of blue. So the pink would work okay with blue. I'd be worried like, do I have to start adding pink to my wardrobe, which again, takes me back to like university and guys wearing pink polos and like big Lebowski shorts and just looking like complete goobers, right? (laughs) There was a lot of that when I was in university. That was a look. Everything comes back. Yeah. But I mean, not, maybe not for me. (laughs) Pink dial watch in a, in a, bronze case. I mean, that's kind of like the Jeff Koons take on a dive watch, right? Like that dive watches to dive watches as like the Jeff Koons bunny is to actual bunny rabbits. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see that. I, I think they're, I think they're fun things. I think they, they look really cool. I, I agree with Danny that the OP is probably the kind of like de facto that people would think of for a pink dial that doesn't have a specifically gendered bend you know, as, as a lot of them would. And it is just a bummer because it's tough to write about the Rolex stuff because you just, no, no one can get it. It's like, it's, it's like writing about seeing a concert in 1975. Like we're, I'm not going to get to see Pink Floyd. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's not going to happen. It bums me out. I saw Aerosmith in 1975. How was it? Just random data point. Uh, it was pretty awesome. It was at the Farm Shore Arena in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And um, yeah. It was, you know, it was... A, they played Dream On? Yes, they Dream did. On was out by 75, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was on the Toys in the Attic album. God, I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, part of Valentine's Day is is pink stuff and heart-shaped boxes and foil balloons and the rest of it. And the other part is is find, is is acknowledging the fact that if you're in a scenario where you have a partner, to pay some deference to said partner, try and understand them a little better. And I think what we got from Danny's story, which is a story I, I really enjoyed, is is a little bit more of an internal look at how a watch can be sort of a tipping point or a balancing point in a relationship. Granted, in a very zoomed in way, not in a, the grand scope of Danny's relationship with his <laughs> wife. But Danny, you, you wrote this fantastic story about uh, why uh, your wife won't share one of her watches. You want to fill us in on this? Yeah, I think of my story as an answer to another story that we have going up that John Buse wrote as well, which is watches you can share with your spouse. And ironically enough, my wife wears a 36 millimeter OP that showed up in that piece. And so this is, this is me saying, well, there's one in my house and I can't, I'm not allowed to wear it. And so the journalist that I am, I put on my investigative hat and I wanted to find out from the source, my wife who has a silver dial OP 36 of the generation that came out 20, was it 2020 when those were released? All the colorful dials plus the silver dial. I think that was 2020. Yeah, the last couple of years kind of. Yeah, last couple of years. And so this was sort of the unsung hero of that launch because everybody paid attention to the pink dial, as we've mentioned for the last 15 minutes. The, the red, the yellow, the green, the quote unquote, not Tiffany, Tiffany blue. And then there was the silver one, which ironically was the watch that Rolex advertised the most. It was the watch, it was the press images that we all got to cover the release. It was sort of the face of the launch. And um, we ended up uh, getting one for her. And it's her, basically her only watch. And she wears it every day and she loves it. And it's awesome for me to see that. It's kind of gotten her into mechanical watches. But 
ever since she's had it, she's never let me wear it. And it's just been really trying because I love, I love this watch. It's a, it's, and as somebody who loves watches, it's really tough. And, and one of the reasons that she's told me uh, outwardly is that she doesn't want me to stretch out the the bracelet if I, if I put it on, which fair point, you know, I mean, it's not like I have, is it though? Not, probably not. And I think it's kind of BS <laughs> because I think she doesn't want me to wear it. It's almost hurtful. Right. I mean, it's, it's really hard to stretch out a modern Rolex bracelet. They're specifically designed designed not to get stretched out. I've told her that. Trust me, fitter, they I've said it. And the thing is, I, what my what my hope was, because the Rolex bracelets, I'm going to go real, real uh, micro here. They have the EasyLink extension system and she has it sized for herself when the extension system is open. Oh, that's tricky. It's tricky for me because if it was- if That's it, like putting the club on your car when you leave, right? Right. If it was the opposite, <laughs> then I could open it up, put it on, close it up, give it back. This is not the case. Wow, she really doesn't want you to wear that right. watch, does she? It, right. <laughs> She's thought about it. She's thought about it. I think you might just, I, you might want to let this one yeah. go. Is it too late to unpublish no, this I'm, story? I'm, we, we, we went deep, you know, and the thing is, what's in there too is before uh, she had this watch, I, I sort of gifted her my Seiko SKX007 on a Jubilee bracelet. And she wore that for like a better part of a year and a half all the time. And, you know, a Seiko SKX is not a Rolex OP, but I think, you know, I earned a little bit of a right to test, to test drive the car, the the watch or just like wear it every once in a while. But we don't really share, we don't really share watches that often. And and right now I'm not sharing anything. Trade embargo. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, there, there, uh, when you're in a long-term relationship and or marriage, you do kind of have to pick which hill you're going to die on. Right. And this is not, this is, I, I don't think this one's quite worth it, but it feels like it is. It feels worth it. <laughs> Here's my question is when the value of these things keeps climbing in the secondary market, does this change your math, your kind of at home math? If you knew you could go out and get another one conceivably. Well, oh, so, wait, right. But I can't write. So, so if this was, if this was like. It's a commodity. It's, it's impossible because in, in a perfect world, I go get my own just out of spite. I get a spite Rolex, you know? Yeah. You've got a highly sequestered marketplace within your own home. And there's, there's only, you know, there's only so much supply and it sounds like demand is off the charts. Yeah. That's going to be tough. That's going to be really tough. Yeah. It's going to be tough to find an upside in this battle, I think for sure. <laughs> the, the outlook is, the outlook is, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm betting on <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I, I will, you know, I'm sure commenters are, are not going to be on my side ultimately, or maybe they will. I mean, there, 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 there's not too many in there yet, but we'll see how it shakes out. I'll be paying attention. Years and years and years ago, my, my grandmother is one of the wisest people I've ever met. She offered the only advice, relationship advice she's ever given me was, um, <laughs> she said, you know, just buy two rolls of toothpaste. And the idea was kind of, was kind of like, you know, don't, don't make something small the thing that, that becomes like a daily little annoyance to you. The thing about fighting over stuff like where you squeeze the toothpaste tube is that it, it, uh, it invariably turns into a fight about something else. Oh, sure. A single origin fight is very rare, but it sounds like you could, you know, like maybe the secret here is to, is to, is to source yourself another OP and just run the tube how you want. Yeah. You can go, you can, you can go from, why are you criticizing me for squeezing the toothpaste tube in the middle to you've never loved me. Never, never, never. In all the years we've been together, you've never really loved me. In five seconds. It can happen like that. Only the toothpaste (laughs) understands me. I would love a single. This is why my Kramer versus Kramer selection made sense. Sense. It's that's right. And <laughs> yeah, you know, that movie sure. too. If you can look at it a certain way, the ending's not not terribly unhappy. Yeah, and, and it's uh, like the movie. The movie is the is what it is. I would say that even unhappy or happy, I wouldn't say it's a deeply 
pessimistic film about about the idea of relationships. No, I will say as a quick aside, that was the absolute hardest watching movies watch spotting I've ever done. There was nothing out there. I was standing. You, my wife was watching me standing like a five year old in front of the television, like like inches away, pausing, playing, pausing, playing a movie from nineteen seventy nine. Uh, doesn't have, you know, that great of quality. So when you do freeze frame, it's very grainy. So, uh, you know, it was a, it was a tough, a tough, uh, tough call. And still she loves you. She deserves that watch. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, Dan- Danny, have you ever gone so far for like, you know, watching movies as to like you go out and you actually buy a high resolution remastered Blu-ray disc of a movie that you want to cover just so that you can identify the watch? I mean, yeah, I've yeah, actually yeah. gone as far as getting the highest resolution cr- cut that I could find doctoring the image to give it the highest amount of contrast possible and then using a TNI reverse image lookup to see if anything close to that exists as a photo. Otherwise, this was to try and find the watch that Anthony Hopkins or the other guy wears in the movie where the popes are. The two popes. The two popes. There you go. And it turns out it was some sort of weird fitness tracker. I never actually figured it out all the way. Yeah, I mean, luckily for me right now, like iTunes, which is usually my go-to, a lot of the movies have been upgraded to, you know, 4K, UHD. But still, what you get with some of these older films is just like enhanced grain because there's really no, nothing you can do. And and which is fine. I mean, I'm like, like The Godfather is famously getting yet another remastering and and they're returned they're bringing it back to theaters for i think a night or two i'm interested to see what that will look like because there is a watch in the godfather part two that i'm that will eventually be featured on watching movies well on that godfather note we can move on to kind of our our final chapter of the story here uh with a a letter that jack wrote that we can't really refuse and that's a a love letter to watches and and i i think i like this even if it wasn't pegged to a valentine's day thing i just like that especially for you, Jack, but I think it's something that we should all consider even writing and not publishing. But I just think being able for me to be able to read a thousand words about literally what you think your role in this is and, and why you like it. And it's very clear that what that there's a certain part of your personality that enjoys complexity and, and the navigation th- therein. And, and I really enjoy that as well. Take us through the, the kind of, you know, elevator pitch for, for this story. When you're, when you're given a like, write a love letter to watches, I think you made something that's both like kind of general and accessible, but still very personal to your perspective, which I appreciated quite a bit. Because I think mine, if I tried to do this, it would come out deeply personal to the point of being almost opaque. You know, it's a, it's funny. Um, I was sort of inspired, well, I was inspired to write this because I had to come up with something for Valentine's Day, but it's kind of, <laughs> it's also something that I've, you know, sort of wanted to write for a while because um, it is kind of a strange thing you know, on the face of it to spend your entire professional life writing about watches. I mean, it seems less weird now than it did 10, 15, 20 years ago when watches were a much more, uh, you know, sort of niche interest and niche hobby. And I, I was kind of inspired by uh, something that one of my favorite food writers, I, I should say one of my favorite writers, MFK Fisher wrote uh, as the preface for her autobiographical uh, book, The Gastronomical Me. So she was one of the first Americans to sort of like go to Paris after the first world war and start eating her way around France. And she and her husband lived in Dijon for a few years. And, um, you know, it was revelatory to her to eat for, as it was for a lot of Americans to actually like, you know, eat French food. And this was when already you were starting to transition away from the sort of like really, really heavy, you know, Escoffier style brigade cooking to, um, you know, more like I would say regional French cooking and appreciation for, you know, cooking in different parts of the country. 
And, you know, but like to be a food writer was a weird thing for a while. It wasn't anything that anybody took seriously. And she, despite the fact that she was a fantastic writer, she wasn't really taken seriously as a writer for a pretty long time. And this, despite the fact that people like, I think it was W.H. Auden who actually, um, you know, said at one point that uh, he thought she was the best writer writing in America. I, you know, and I, I've, been, I've thought about that for a long time. I read that book for the first time when I was uh, when I was a kid. I think I was probably, you know, eight or nine years old. And, you know, you write about watches. It's a really, it's a, it is a, it doesn't seem strange today because watches are so popular and they're so much a part of public discourse, but it's certainly kind of a niche subject. I mean, no question about it. And uh, so I kind of like riffed off of MFK Fisher's intro to her book, you know, with this one where I, you know, I said, uh, um, like, you know, people ask me, I mean, and they do like, how can you spend your entire professional life writing about watches? I mean, you know, it's like, doesn't that seem like kind of a weird, freaky, undignified, <laughs> um, hopelessly niche uh, possibly juvenile thing to do. And I, uh, you know, I've, it, it is all of those things. A little bit. It is actually, um, but you know, it's, which I think your son, your son pointed that out when he stole the mic from you on an opening of Hey Houdinki the other day. Yeah, that's, yeah. if I remember correctly. That's actually, that's, I mean, that, that whole thing kind of, um, spun out of a conversation that he and I had, it was years ago, you know, and I was like, like neither of my sons are interested in watches. My wife's not interested in watches. And I was talking to Zach, who's the older of my two boys about it. And, um, kind of tried trying to talk him into being interested in watches. And he just, just sort of at the end of it, he just sighed and looked at me and said, I don't know, dad, I just find the whole luxury thing unbelievably juvenile. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's... That's so sad, Jack. I kind of imagine you have this Gollum Smeagol situation happening if no one in your house has <laughs> talked to you about watches, what happens? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but so, you know, uh, what, what I the love letter to watches is really it's it's an argument for taking watches seriously and an argument for why they're actually worth writing about and why they're why they're interesting and um you know one of the most basic things for me is that watches are really they're kind of an attempt to solve a problem in physics so like i look at a watch and i see a lot of different things but you know what a watch is fundamentally like really fundamentally like you strip away everything else and what it is is a harmonic oscillator that's a, an oscillator that has a, a a frequency that it wants to oscillate at. And what makes a watch a harmonic oscillator is the balance spring. So it's a harmonic oscillator and a way of counting the oscillations of the harmonic oscillator. And when they add up to a minute, an hour, 24 hours, the hands move. And there's a really, really simple in classical mechanics, there's a really, really simple mathematical characterization of a harmonic oscillator. Like it's not a complicated equation, but it's an idealized representation of a harmonic oscillator. Right. And uh, what a watch is trying to do, if you can you know, use the expression trying about an inanimate object, what a watch is trying to do is get as close to the ideal mathematical representation of a harmonic oscillator as possible. And it's um, it's kind of moving to me in a weird sort of way. I don't know. Maybe this is, you know, another sort of manifestation of the bizarre way that your brain starts to work when you cover a subject for long enough. But there's something almost you know, beautifully tragic, almost in a Shakespearean way about the fact that a watch can get like, it can, it can get closer and closer and closer and closer to the idealized mathematical representation of a harmonic oscillator, but it can never actually get there, right? Like you will always be defeated by, by friction, basically by the fact that there's, you know, you can, you can reduce it, but you can never produce a physical system uh, that has no friction at all. So every time, a, you know, a component of the watch moves, there's a little bit of friction and a little bit of energy is lost to the environment is heat. And they can be minute irregularities, but this introduces irregularities into the uh, behavior of the oscillator. And so you can get like, you can get to within plus two seconds, minus two seconds a day in a mechanical watch, which is what Rolex does with every watch they produce. But you can never actually produce a perfect watch. 
you know, Breguet is supposed to have said, give me the perfect oil and I'll make you the perfect watch. I think you unpack that. What he was really saying was, if I, can make a, if I could make a watch in which there was no friction, I could make a perfect watch. So there's that. And then there's the fact that, like, you know, with watches, you know, you've got 500 years of people trying to get closer and closer and closer and closer to this uh, mathematical ideal. And, you know, there was so much ingenuity. I mean, some of the greatest minds of their time, some of the greatest scientific minds of their times, you know, engaged with this problem without accurate clocks and watches. A lot of what we think of, you know, in the bro in broader terms in human history, you know, would not have happened. So like, you know, you, like marine chronometers, for example, why did so many people work so hard to create marine chronometers? It's because if you don't have a marine chronometer, you don't have a blue water Navy. You can't navigate across the open ocean with any reliability. And you also don't have a blue water merchant marine. If you wanted to be a world power for a couple of hundred years, you had to be able to produce marine chronometers and you had to be able to produce them in quantity. And then there's like, there's the design aspect of watches. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of different decorative arts that go into them. I mean, there's just, there's just so much to learn. There's so much to unpack. And you really can, you know, you can never really get to the end of all of the things that you can learn about watches. And they touch so many other worlds. You know, I mean, everything from the sort of philosophical perspectives on time and the human relationship to time, to arts and crafts and design, to, uh, you know, the history of exploration. I mean, they're just... Clocks and watches are deeply, deeply interesting things to write about. And it's true that it's, I think it's true that it's a narrow subject in some respects, but it's a very, very deep one. And um, I mean, what, what I say at the end of the story is the amount of interest that you can find in watches is really only limited by the limits of your curiosity. And I absolutely think that's true. I mean, I've been writing about watches probably for 20 years and, um, you know, I learned, I learned something new every day. And, um, you know, I just don't think that there's any, there's any limit to the amount of interest that you can find in them. You know, and I mean, I, 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 I think we're living at an interesting time as watch writers because it's starting to become considerably less weird to be a watch writer in the same way that it became not only um, normal, but actually a celebrated thing to be a food writer. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of I kind of like the fact that that's where we're going. Yeah, I, I don't disagree at all. And I think that's a, a lovely kind of encapsulation of the story. But I, anyone listening who didn't read it, jump back and read it. It's, it's great. I, I kind of broke it down into your appreciation for the raw technical merits of what, what watchmaking tries to do, the historical element, which I think speaks to a lot of people. And in such a broad sense, like you can find an area of history that you love that, that was probably drastically changed by the advent of accurate clocks and then accurate wristwear. And then you talk about the people, which you've mentioned here. The part that I really enjoyed because it really made me feel like, why, why do I do this? is the, the final part where you start to speak about some of the barrier to entry, the things you have to understand to truly understand watches. And I read that paragraph and I went like, well, I, it's a good thing Jack's on my side because I don't really get 99% of what you listed in there. You know, I, I think my fascination for watches stems from a longstanding love of where technology meets art, where uh, the goal of a, of a, let's say a car, my other big love, is obviously to take you from one place to another preferably safely and, and at a speed that you prefer. But to do that in a watch, of course, is just, just meant to tell you the time in as accurate a manner as possible. Everything else is like layers and layers and layers and layers of endless context. And I think that's where my general fascination comes from it. But I've always appreciated the ability to read something in a press release or uh, read something in one of your stories, Jack, especially the stuff that digs into astronomy which is not something that I studied beyond the high school level, beyond reading, I guess, your, your stuff. But I always, have always appreciated as long as we've been working together. And, and to be honest, before that, we traded some, some informational sort of conversations back in the day. My ability to just be able to ask, like, what is it that you're saying here if you took 200 words to say it instead of seven or eight? Because sometimes I need the 200-word the explanation of, 
of, uh, you know, why an escape with this escapement technology might be better than that, but also why the better one never made it to a wristwatch or something like that. I mean, I think that one of the most interesting challenges in technical watch writing is to write about a complex subject, um, you know, simply and clearly. And it's really, really, really hard to do. Absolutely. I mean, I taught science classes uh, at an undergraduate level for, I think, probably four or five years at one point. And, um, you know, I always felt uh, like going back and apologizing to the students that I had, you know, my first year because I really hadn't figured out how to explain a lot of this stuff, you know. Yeah, teaching is an art. A long, long time ago, I read the book that Albert Einstein wrote on special relativity. And, you know, I mean, special relativity, that's a complicated subject. I mean, uh, you know, he managed to explain it, you know, very, very simply by starting out with a really simple question, which is, what does it feel like to ride a beam of light? And, you know, once you, st- you know, once you start there, you can sort of unpack the whole thing in a way that's like relatively easy to understand and that kind of like makes sense. You know, I mean, like, where did this bizarre picture of the world come from? You know, I mean, it came from asking, you know, this like really, really straightforward question. And, you know, with technical watch rating, I think that like trying to explain something completely and clearly but with, you know, as few words as possible is just like, it's first, first of all, it's a service to the reader. And secondly, it's just like a, you know, an inherently interesting thing to try and do. Well, I mean that the brief that you're describing there is essentially a TED talk, right? Explain something to a general audience that's typically exceedingly complicated, sometimes almost ludicrously complicated. Yeah. And you have a time limit. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can't spend a week. You have 18 minutes or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And I would love to see watches a love letter become Jack's TED talk. <laughs> I wouldn't mind at all. That would be great. That would be fantastic. We could probably produce that without Ted. I, I, we probably couldn't call it a Ted talk. Ted, Ted might get mad. Call it a Jack talk. It's a Jack talk. We'll just start a whole thing called Jack talks. I'm into <laughs> Say it. Odinky. No, but like, uh, my, 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 I know. My first, I don't know, six or seven months at Hodinky, I was writing a story about um, new Rolex releases and I was having sort of a story conference with Jack about it. And the conversation about balance springs sort of went, we went way off topic, I think, for what my story was. And it ended up turning into me writing another story about like a technical piece about balance springs and something that I was not in my comfort zone, but I think I was able to learn it. And the same way that I was learning it sort of at a, at an entry level manner, I think helped me to explain it once I had a grasp of it. I'm nowhere at the technical level that Jack is, but I think there's, there is an art to technical writing, especially when we're talking about the small components that are in watches to about a literal spring. I mean, I wrote 1500 to 2000 words about a spring. Not a lot of people read it, but it's there and you can, you can check it out whenever you want to. <laughs> Find it in the show notes. Exactly. Good Valentine's Day reading. One of my very favorite books, this is going to sound super weird. Uh, one of my very favorite books is called Ignition! Exclamation point. And it was written by a guy who worked in the, um, in the rocket industry developing propellants for his entire professional career. He was a, a chemist. And um, at one point he's talking about a class of rocket fuels uh, that are uh, hypergolic. That is, if you mix the propellant and the oxidizer together, they will spontaneously ignite. And um, he was writing about a particularly nasty fluorine compound. Like, like if you want to really scare yourself, read about fluorine chemistry because um, it'll burn things that you would already think are, you know, burn beyond recognition. And he said that uh, this particular compound was not only hypergolic with all known oxidizers, it was also hypergolic with things like concrete, rubber, reinforced uh, steel uh, Dewar flasks, which are, you know, containers for keeping fuel at a certain temperature. And uh, it also turns out that it's hypergolic with test engineers. 
And um, I thought, you know, this is <laughs> this is a pretty that's a pretty hilarious sentence, and it's about like potentially the you know one of the most boring things in the world that you could possibly talk about. But it, it's like it's a super super enter- entertaining book and just a classic example of how to write about a technical subject for a general audience and be funny. Yeah, this is a this is fascinating, and, and it could be a podcast all its own, really, right? Like like getting into these topics and trying to explain them in ways that make sense. And and I think it's something that we should consider, you know, kind of digging into. But I, I do really like the impetus of it coming from more of a love letter format than a textbook. This is why I like watches and why I've devoted so much time to it. And and like I said, I think it's something we should all consider writing, whether we publish it or not. I mean, the great thing about uh, writing about watches is that uh, all that it takes to spend your entire career kind of growing as a watch writer is curiosity. And, and a hodinky at this point. It helps to have a soapbox. <laughs> well, look, guys, we're, uh, we're well our way into this. And uh, it's Valentine's Day. So if you've been listening for 40 minutes or whatever, you should get back to uh, more romantic topics and, uh, and experiences. And, and you certainly have our blessing on that front. Nora, Jack, Danny, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show. Thanks, James. Thanks, James. Thanks for having us. And a happy Valentine's to all three of you, of course, and to everyone listening. Happy Valentine's to you as well. Thank you so much for listening. Like I say every week, if you, if you enjoyed the show, if you're liking the show, hit the show notes, leave a comment and tell a friend, send them a link, uh, share it around. And uh, otherwise, we'll speak to you in about a week's time. Take care.